Okay, let's take out our Bibles and we're going to turn to the book of James. Chapter 1, verse 22 and following says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The book of James is a pretty uh, interesting book. Most commentators have compared it to the book of Proverbs and also to the Sermon on the Mount. There's many parallels between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. And uh, that makes sense. The James that wrote it, as best we can tell, is the half-brother of Jesus. And so he would have grown up around Jesus and would probably be very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. He also, being a devout Jewish person, would have been familiar with the book of Proverbs. The book of James is a bit poetic. It's, it's beautiful. At the same time, it's, it's bold and it's to the point. There's a, 108 verses in the book of James and 54 verses contain a command. So you're getting a new command about every other verse as you go through this book. It's intensely practical. And for that reason, I remember when I was a new Christian, the book of James very early became one of my favorite books because it's just so practical at how to live out your Christian life. The Bible Knowledge Commentary called it picturesque and passionate. I expressly liked what the Bible Project labeled it. It called it a beautifully crafted punch in the gut. <laughs> that, was, that was a great summary. Well, if I look at the book of James as a whole, like I said, it covers many subjects and it uh, kind of speaks directly to the point. Heavily banked in the Old Testament. Uh, he's going to reference 21 different books of the Old Testament in these five short chapters. But you know what? The real kind of point of the book of James, if you were to kind of say, what is the overall point that he's making in the entire book? If you had a theme that ran throughout the passages, what would that theme be? And that theme is just very simply, be real. Be real. This is not a book that focuses a lot on Christian precepts. You can recognize that they are the support for the actions that he calls for. But this is not about Christian precepts or thought. It's about Christian actions. It's about Christian practice. He's saying, you who believe this, act like it. The sermon that people get from us shouldn't just be with our mouth. It should be with our actions and our lives. Well, and as we are to be real in our expression of our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ, he recognizes that life contains some suffering. And so he deals a bit with that suffering and, and with a, a bigger picture that life is short and, and we're not the ones in control. And so he takes a very real look at life and it makes sense with who he is because James, as I mentioned, is the half-brother of Jesus. And actually, pretty early time in the Jerusalem church's history, James became the pastor there. And Jerusalem, as you know, went through some real trials. Persecution began heavily on the church in Jerusalem. And Christians were being persecuted for their faith. Not only that, but there was a famine that hit Jerusalem and the surrounding area at a time. So James is a person that would have been very familiar with suffering. And what it is, is just James expanding his ministry. The same wisdom that he'd been sharing with the church in Jerusalem as they strive to live a life faithful to God through those troubling times, he now tries to spread that to other people that are not in Jerusalem, that are scattered about, facing some real sufferings in their life as well. And James tries to give them some encouragement, some commands, some strength to be able to stand up and live for Christ in their situation, to be real. 
Well, as we look through this passage, we find that there are some tests to go through. As we look through the book, there's these tests that will help demonstrate that you're for real. We're going to look at six tests, and then we're going to look at three tools that God gives us to be able to prove well in those tests. Well, the first test that we see is that your religion should be visible. That's the prominent theme throughout this book is that if you are a person of faith, then we should be able to see that in your life. There's different things that should be visible. The word Christian means to be like a little Christ or a Christ follower. Well, if we're a little Christ or a Christ follower, then other people should recognize that in our lives. And that's pretty much what James is dealing with. Now, as Christians, we often kind of shy away from that word religion. We usually like to say, well, it's not really a religion, it's a relationship. And the point that we're making when we make that point is true. But the fact of the matter is our belief in God and stuff, it also qualifies as a religion. It is a religion as well. But it is a religion based on that relationship with Jesus Christ. James uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If it's just what you say you believe, but your actions don't back that up, if your religion doesn't line up with what you're saying, then he's saying that's a worthless religion. That's not beneficial. In fact, when we get into this passage deeper in the future, we're going to see that you actually can do more harm than good, not only to others, but to yourself. He says, don't deceive yourself. If you're going to say one thing but live something else, he says, that's not compatible. That's not a genuine religion before God. But the true religion is not just of the things that we say. It's of the things that we do. We're not just spouting off Scripture passages. We're actually supposed to be doing the things that God calls us to do. Um, Not only that, it says the, the religion that is pure and undefiled before God puts other people first. It gives us that servant's attitude, that servant's heart, where we are concerned about the well-being of others, even above that of our own. And then also that, that idea of being unstained from the world. In other words, not participating or running with the world in the same excesses that they run in, or the same entertainments that they find to entertain themselves, the same worldly thoughts and concepts that guide their actions. We should be very different. And I'll tell you what, as our world and our culture goes the direction it's going, it should not be hard to be different. It's going crazy in a hurry. And we need to be that anchor that's slowing it down. And you'll be despised for it, just as they were back then, but that's what we need to be. If you're real, then your religion should be very visible. And these are the kinds of things that should be visible in your in your religion. Your actions, not just your words, your compassion for other people, and your purity, which you will live your life in and not going by the world's standards. But then also, he says, not only that, but your love should be visible. In chapter 2, he starts to talk about giving favor to one person over another. And he says, look, if, if somebody comes into your services and they're uh, well-respected and well-dressed and, and uh, uh, wealthy and kind of a prominent member of society and you treat them one way and then somebody else comes into your service and they're somebody that's in, in poverty or not dressed well or whatever the case may be and you treat them differently, then that is the opposite of love. 
It might be love for self because if you treat them differently, what are you doing? You're trying to get a, an in with somebody where you want an in and this person isn't really real valuable to you in what, how you see yourself or how you want to be seen. And so it would maybe self-interest would be there. But the, James has a lot to say about self-interest as you work through the book and it's not good. He says, you know what, we need to be visible in our love. And so he draws this picture of these two people coming into church and you favoring one over the other, being a respecter of persons. And he says, look, that's not love. And in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which remember is both an Old Testament and a New Testament command. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So think about that. These people in their churches, people were coming in the door and they were treating them differently based on who they were. James says you're actually sinning within the church. I remember one time years ago, I was a fairly new Christian, but starting to get involved in ministry and stuff, not gone off to Bible college yet. Starting a kids ministry on a Wednesday nights and trying to get some kids from the neighborhood in and kids from the church in and teach them, teach them the Bible and reach them with the Gospel. And I remember talking to one guy and he says, well, if you really want to get kids in a kids ministry, go to the projects. He said, you will get a lot of kids from the projects. And I did. I talked to the pastor. I said, I'd like to go down to the lower income housing. And I'd like to use the church van that was sitting in the parking lot most of the time. And the pastor said, great, do it. And so we started going down door knocking, knocking in there, inviting people. we got Wednesday night program too for your kids. We'd like to come. We'll come pick them up even. And they let us come pick them up. And pretty soon we had a pretty full group of kids that were having a Wednesday night children's program and we were having a great time trying to reach them with the gospel and we did that pretty much up till the time we headed off to Bible college. And I remember I at another point I talked to another pastor. I don't remember what the subject matter all was and he said to me about a certain class, maybe you'd call it of people or whatever. He said, "You know what? That's not the kind of people you build the church on. You got to have these solid families to build the church on." Well, that's true. The church does promote solid families and solid families build a church to an extent. But I hated the spirit of that statement. My first thought was, what do you mean that's not the kind of people you build the church on? Everybody is the kind of people you build the church on. The Bible makes it pretty clear that God does not choose the wise things of the world. He chooses us foolish ones, right? He doesn't choose the strong of the world. He chooses the weak. And so everybody is the kind of person that you build the church on. And that's what James is telling him here. Look, if you're measuring people by what kind of people you build the church on when you're coming in, you got it wrong here. And that's not love. Because our first thought when people walk in the door should be what can the church, what can we as a church do for them? Now what can they do for us? And so he says, look, if you've got that self-interested kind of a attitude, then that is not the love that should be visible within the church. And, and who is the church? We are the church. And so he says, look, your love should be visible. Your compassion for everybody should be visible. That's what needs to happen, he says, within the book of James. Then not only that, but he also says, that it goes on to say, well, your faith should be visible as well. Let's just read part of the passage in chapter 2, beginning of verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is it? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you claim to have faith and then somebody has real struggles going on and you're not willing to help, 
Now he's already just got done talking about where's the love and that kind of a thing. Now he's going to say where's the faith in that kind of thing. What kind of God do you have a faith in if your faith doesn't compel you to be of a benefit, to be of a help to other people? He says, is that really the kind of faith that saves? And we'll get deeper into it later. But he's going to go on and use the faith of Abraham in comparison and say, look, we can see Abraham's faith in the things that he does, in his activities before God. And it's the same with us. If you have faith, it'll be visible in your life. I remember I had a pastor one time that, that made this statement that always stuck with me. He said, look, if your faith won't change your life, it won't save your soul either. That is the point. What is faith? Faith is faithful. Faithful to God. Faithful to the Word of God and the things, the precepts that we find within it. And so he says, look, if you're a person of faith, well, then that should be very visible in your life. In fact, he's going to raise it up. He's going to say, look, if you say, uh, look, I have faith and you have works, he's going to say, what is that? He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, it's not a matter of is faith enough to save you? And that's, there's going to be a discussion about that in the passage here a little bit. It's about is it faith? Because you know what? We're saved by faith apart from your, our works. But you know what? A saving faith is never apart from works. In other words, you're saved only by your faith. You're only saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. You cannot do enough works to merit your salvation or earn your way into heaven. You're saved only by your faith. But you know what faith does? Faith works. Faith changes your life. It starts to take some things in your life that shouldn't be there and get rid of them. And it starts to instill within your life other things that should have been there all along but weren't. Genuine faith works. It changes us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so our religion should be visible. Our love should be visible. Our faith should be visible. Your wisdom should be visible as well. You know, in James chapter 1, early in the passage, he says, if any of us lacks wisdom, we have a great source. We have an unlimited source in God who is willing to give it to us, desiring to give it to us, but we have to ask Him for it and, and not only that, but trust Him for it as well. He focuses on it a little bit more even and in, in this idea of being visible with it in James chapter 3. In verses 13 through 17, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So notice he's uh, beginning to focus again on wisdom. And as he does, he says it should be demonstrated, it should be shown, be shown in the meekness of our wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, there's that ugliness popping back up again. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so it's really the same concept over and over again. These things, our religion, our love, our faith, our wisdom, all these things are things that if we are real, they're going to show us to be real in the actions of our lives. Well, then he goes on also to point out humility. Now in chapter 4, it begins dealing with our response to the world and not being a friend of the world. To be a friend of the world makes us the enemy of God. And 
it deals with our relationship to worldliness and this world system of thought and this uh, this world uh, system of evil that's around us and our participation or lack of participation in it. And as he goes on from there, dealing with wisdom into dealing with the world, he ends up focusing on something else, and it's humility. And that makes sense because if if you are participating in the world to, in an unscriptural way. Uh, you know, because there is, uh, of course, the world that God loves, which is the people of the world, and then there is the world that God hates, which is the ungodly system of the world that's involved there. And he says, look, if you do that, making yourself the enemy of God or expressing your enmity with God, then uh, you know what you are? You are proud. And when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. Because what is worldliness? Worldliness is, is where we say, you know what, God, I know that your path goes this way, but you know what, I'm going to go this way. I know that you say it's better for me to behave this way, but I want to behave this way. Now, what is that if it's not arrogant? You're saying to the Creator of the world, the One who made you and also sent His Son to die for you, that you know what, I don't really care what your will is. This is what I want to do, and so I'm going to do it. If that's not arrogant, I don't know what is. You know, pride is really what is the foundation of all of our sin. When you look back even at the, the depths of depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah, where people were going and following unnatural perversions. You know what? Later, as a commentary of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know what the Bible says about was the main sin of Sodom? Pride. It's because they said, we don't care that you made us to live this way. We're going this way. It's like Romans 1 talks about when it talks about the same kinds of behavior. It says they took the glory of this amazing God, this majestic God, and they exchanged it. They exchanged it. They did not recognize it. They exchanged it. And what happens when you do that? Basically, you say, God, step down off the throne because I'm stepping up. I'm taking control. I'm calling the shots. I'm making the decisions in this life. This is my life. Well, the Bible tells us we are bought with a price. And so, what does it deal with? It deals with humility. Are we proud and arrogant and saying, God, I know best for me and I'm going to do it my way? The essence of sinfulness? Or are we humble? and submitting to God. And that's what He calls us to do in the book of James. In chapter 4, verses 6-10, through 10, it says, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. But God says, you know what? If you've been living your life in a different direction than what I have for you, it's a time of mourning. There is a time of sorrow and there is a time where we cry before God and say, God, I am sorry. Now, the awesome thing is that that kind of a response will turn to joy. As we humble ourselves before God like that, He it draws us to Himself. He pulls us to Himself. And so, but as long as we're proud and arrogant, we are away from God and we're with the devil. When we humble ourselves before God, it says the devil will flee and God will draw us near. And that's where joy, that's where real joy happens. You know, I know dealing with family issues sometimes in the lives of kids and, and teenagers. You know, sometimes you'll, you'll have headbutting, right? Because a kid says, I want to do this, and the parent says, you're not doing that. The kid just feels like, I need to do this in order to be, that's what's going to make me happy, that's what I want to do, and the parent's saying, no, you're not going to do it. Now, why is the parent saying, no, you're not going to do it? 
You know why typically the parent is saying, no, you're not going to do it? They're saying it because they know that there's some dangers in that activity. There's some, there's some pitfalls within that thing. And that is not the path to any lasting happiness. It might give you, as the Bible says, a little bit of pleasures. You can enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. It might, it might give you a thrill for a little while. But you know what? On the other side of that little thrill is a lot of unhappiness. And you're headed right for it. But the parents know that if you go this other direction, God's direction... It may not look as exciting at the moment, but a real deep and lasting joy accompanies that direction. You know what? It's the same with God. God tells us there's things that we need to not be doing, things we need to stay away from, and some of those things look appealing to us. Some of those things look enticing to our sinful nature. And we think, boy, that looks fun. That looks exciting. That looks happy. That's a good time. It's a trap. And God knows if you go His way is a deeper more satisfying, more fulfilling, lasting joy and happiness than you will ever hope to find in that kind of a place, in those other activities. It comes through humility. It comes through humbling ourselves before God, submitting to Him, rather than arrogantly saying, nope, God, I, I got this one. I know best here. God's just going, no, you don't. You have no idea. The last test that He puts us through is patience. In chapter 5, he starts dealing some more with uh, possessions. He starts dealing with kind of the rich and the poor. And, and he's saying, look, you rich, possessions aren't going to buy you anything. They're not going to buy you any lasting happiness or joy. They're not going to buy you any uh, position in heaven or anything like that. Uh, in fact, he says, you know what your wealth does? Your wealth is going to rot with you. You're going to go to the grave one day. Our life is a vapor, appears for a little time, then vanishes away. We're like the flowers that prop up one day and they're dead the next. Uh, our life is brief. He says, you know what? Your wealth does the same thing. It leaves too. It's, it corrupts and it rots. Well, he goes on in verse 7. He says, be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's writing to these people that are undergoing some sufferings and some persecutions, some hardships. And he says, just be patient. Just keep trusting God. You know, when a farmer goes to grow his crop, it doesn't prop up overnight. Well, you know what? God is God is not only growing fruit and trees and stuff like that. You know what He's growing? He's growing you. And he, He's growing you, and you take time. Well, one of the holidays that we celebrate, our family loves to do prime rib for that every year. And, you know, it takes a few hours to cook that, and, it's, and you have it seasoned before, and it sits in the fridge a day before that. And so there's a whole long process to getting a good prime rib, and we, we love it. Now, you can have that good prime rib dinner or you can have pizza rolls in about 10 minutes. Right, but which one do you want? Well, that's the way it is. That's the way it is with trees. That's the way it is farming, growing stuff. That's the way it is with growing you. That's the way it is in your life. You're going to have a good, solid life and a strong life. You know what that means? It means you're going to have to have some tests and you're going to have to have some trials. You're going to have to learn how to respond to some suffering. And you're going to have some good times and things as well. And you're going to have different relationships. Relationships with people. Some of them are going to be hard relationships. Some of them are going to be much more natural relationships. But, but there's, there's all those things that come into our life. And what is he saying? He's saying, look, be patient. Be patient. In the end, it's all your good. But be patient. Well, in this very practical book, he calls us to these very practical things. He says these key areas of your life have to be very visible if you're real. If you're genuine, then your religion is going to be visible to people. Your love, your, your faith, your wisdom, your, your humility, your patience, all that is going to be... People will be able to see that in you because it's the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces within you. And it's what happens when we abide in Christ. Well, 
throughout the book of James, he also points to a few tools that help us to do just these things. And these tools that they begin with are, one, the Word of God. He leans on the Word of God heavily. As I said, he alludes to 21 different passages in the Old Testament as you go through this short book of five chapters. And so he banks heavily on Scripture. But not only that, he recommends Scripture to us heavily. Back in chapter 1, in verses 21, verse 21, he says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. It's the Word of God that brings to our attention the Gospel of Jesus Christ and brings us to that born-again experience where we put our hope and faith in Jesus Christ. But it's also that which grows us. He encourages us in verse 22 through 25, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So it compares us to us going to the mirror. I went to the mirror this morning. Most of you went to the mirror this morning. Right, or you didn't go to the mirror this morning. <laughs> I had to ask him before church, how long did it take you to get that do going? And I kind of rubbed it a little bit. And his mom said, all night long. <laughs> yep, took, take some time. You know, you go to the mirror to do what? Say, well, what needs to be fixed? But th- that's the point. Why do you look in the mirror? To see what needs to change. Why do you look in the Word of God to see what needs a change? And sometimes those changes are an encouragement. Sometimes they're a correction. It comes in different forms. Who would go to a mirror and look at the mirror and say, man, my hair's a mess, and then turn around and walk away and say, ah, forget about it. But people do that with their Bibles. He says, you know, when you go to your Bible and, and dig into the Word of God, you see something that needs a change. Now focus on that. Think about that through the rest of the day. Uh, what am I going to do to change that? What am I going to do to make that part of my life change? He says, that's who's blessed. Otherwise, you're deceiving yourself. And so he gives us the Word of God as a tool to help us in this way. Also, he gives us prayer. He focuses quite a bit in chapter 5 on prayer. In, uh, in verse 16, he says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And for an example, he gives Elijah. So he gives us the Word of God as one tool to accomplish this in our lives. Prayer for another thing. And then uh, lastly, you can see it's already kind of getting there with this passage. Not only prayer is in this verse, our relationship with one another, as we hold one another accountable and we are an encouragement to one another, also helps us, is a tool that God gives us to use to build our life up the way that He wants it to be. So each other found in this verse, and then also uh, right after that in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5, says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so notice in verse 16, it talked about us confessing our sins one to another, our struggles, our shortcomings. Why? Because there's strength. There's strength in one another. It's that old thing about a rope, right? One strand easily broken, three strands woven together, much more difficult to break. He says, if we have one another and we share our struggles and our faults, confess our sins to one another, hold each other accountable. He says, as we, he says, you got somebody that's wandering off the path, somebody pulls them back. This is serious business. And that's why God gives us these tools to help us. And what are the tools that we have? 
It's the Word of God. It's prayer. And it's each other. You know, we need to be real. No point in being anything else, is there? Anybody have the goal, lofty ambition of being fake? No. We need to be real. Well, the book of James helps us do that. It tests our reality. Can I see your religion in action? Can I see your love for other people in action? Can I see your faith? How about your wisdom or your humility or your patience? What do we see when we look at ourselves through those lenses, through those tests? He says, we've got some tools for you as you dig into God's Word and start to do the things, make the changes that it calls for in there. As you pray and lean upon God and as you lean upon one another, helping one another to grow in that relationship, then that helps us to be real. You see, church isn't a gathering of hypocrites, nor is it a gathering of everybody of people that have got it all figured out. What it's a gathering of, it's a gathering of real people dealing with real issues, struggling with real sins. And as we come together and learn the Word of God and pray for one another and help each other, we grow in that relationship with Jesus Christ and our faith, our love, our religion, all those things is demonstrated in a very visible way in the world in which we live.